Anybody like books? Yeah, we got some readers out there. Uh, Does anybody have a favorite book? Now, before you start answering, um, I know we're in church, and I know some of you are probably wrestling, thinking, well, I should say the Bible because I'm in church, um, but I really like Twilight. Um, That's actually a wrong answer. Um, But uh, give me me some other answers. Uh, Favorite book? Anybody have one? Tribe. Tribe. Okay, I haven't heard of that one. I'll have to check that out. Anybody else? Favorite book? Mark Sports Illustrated is not a book. Uh, back, yeah, what else? Harry Potter series. Yes. You'll say one. The Magician's Nephew. Okay. Fair enough. Lord of the Rings. Speaking of, what's that? Oh, okay. I haven't heard of that one. All right. Lord of the Rings down here. Um, when I was, when I was in sixth grade, The Hobbit was my ultimate favorite book. I loved that book. And our elementary school had a special copy. It was large, which made it cool. It had pictures, which made it cooler. And I think I checked that thing out at least four times and read through that in sixth grade. Um, books are, books are incredible. They teach, they encourage, they challenge, they bring out emotion, um, God does books. God does books. He's not much into fiction, but there's some incredibly important books um, that we'll uh, refer to in this passage that we're going to be studying today that have an incredible bearing on our very lives. Um, we're coming to the end, um, both in our study of the book of Revelation with only two more chapters to go, and also the end of the world as God's plan is unfolded in this apocalyptic vision. Um, Sometimes, though, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like, um, and I want to be careful how I say this, but I feel like when we go through, say, a book like Revelation, that it's almost as if someone has taken a Sharpie marker and, like, marked through some important parts of Scripture, Okay, I'm not saying that God hasn't revealed enough. He has. He has revealed enough for us to obey. He has revealed enough for us to be saved. But a lot of times there's so many more details that we kind of would like to know. And when you get into a book like Revelation, there are these grand images and these grand scenes. And it feels like, I'm going to say, I don't know a lot more than maybe you're comfortable with or, or that I'm comfortable with in this sermon, but there you have it. This is kind of one of those chunks where there are a lot of things that we don't know, but there are enough things to pull out of this passage, um, again, for us to, uh, to be saved and to obey. Uh, let's dive into Revelation chapter 20, shall we? Here's what John writes. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while." This bottomless pit or abyss is, was uh, understood to be this underground cavern that held disobedient spirits. Uh, we've encountered it before in the book of Revelation in chapter 9 when uh, 
scary creatures essentially were dismissed out of this, came out of this pit, the abyss, to wreak havoc on the earth. Um, Here, it is something going in the pit. That's Satan, um, rather than being released. Uh, God gives an angel the ability and the power to throw Satan in there and keep him sealed in that abyss for a thousand years. He's described, uh, Satan is here, by three other different terms uh, that, d- that indicate his character. Uh, dragon, serpent, and devil. A dragon is certainly fearsome, uh, as he's described in chapter 12 as a dragon. A serpent, I think, would remind us of the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were deceived. Devil literally means slanderer, someone who speaks untruth about someone, and Satan means adversary. Right, so you get this, this picture of a formidable enemy, and yet... In comparison with God, it's not even close. There's no contest. God gives an angel the power to bind Satan and throw him in the pit for a thousand years. And uh, this thousand year period will be referred to a number of times in this text um, called the millennium from the Latin meaning thousand and years. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, John tells us that after this thousand-year period, Satan must be released for a little while. It's an inevitability. It's necessary for God's purposes and plan to unfold. Apparently, there will be one more time where Satan can attempt uh, to deceive people living through this millennium period. This 20th chapter of Revelation gives us the most detail about this millennium period, um, but it has been a relatively controversial topic within the church for, well, thousands of years. Um, unfortunately, it has even divided friendships and, and churches over, over the years when people have gotten too dogmatic about it. Um, and we just want to say, with all humility, there's a lot of room for different views on this. When it comes to the end times, as I said before, there are a lot of things that we really don't know. And uh, there, are, there are very devout and intelligent people on, on all sides and all views on this, and uh, we want to make sure that we're not prideful in our views um, and, and to encounter these conversations with a lot of grace. Um, but let's talk Let's talk a little bit about this and the different views that are even out there. Um, there, are, there are a number of major views about this millennium period. And uh, these are just the major ones. There's, there's uh, some different variations even of these. But, uh, but all of the views agree that Christ will physically return. All of the views believe that Believers can be saved. All of the views are futurist, meaning that the second coming of Christ and the last judgment in whatever form or however many sections it takes place in is yet to come. So the difference is in some of the details. Uh, As you look through some of these uh, different graphics, 
that little uh, triangle, the white triangle there, is kind of the you are here of the map. So that indicates where we are in history, in this idea of the timeline. And um, if we start at the bottom with the amillennial view, uh, this view would hold that there is not a literal thousand-year kingdom, that the... um, the verbiage in Revelation is symbolic of this age, the church age. So when Christ ascended into heaven until Christ returns, that's sort of the millennial age. Um, it also, uh, this, the amillennial view uh, doesn't su- subscribe to a literal seven-year tribu- tribulation either. Um, again, sees some of the persecution and trials and tribulation in the book of Revelation as being a part of this church age. Uh, there's a, a view called post-millennialism. Uh, that's that the second coming of Christ will be after the millennium. In other words, the church will usher in the millennium through uh, the sharing of the gospel and nations responding to this gospel and coming to salvation, and then Christ will return. Again, uh, doesn't necessarily see a, a literal um, short, like seven-year tribulation period like referred to in Daniel um, or, or Revelation. Then the premillennial views. Um, these, these views would hold that uh, the second coming of Christ is going to occur before this literal thousand-year period. And during this time, Christ will fulfill some of the unconditional promises uh, to Israel and and the church that otherwise seem unable to be fulfilled. Um, And again, within the the premillennialism view, there are some some also uh, some variations. But from what our pastoral staff understands, and again, there's some variation and and differences even within uh, the staff at TGW, but... Um, we, f- we see premillennialism, a pre-tribulation uh, return of Christ and a literal thousand-year kingdom as the most likely. Um, several, several reasons for that. So we'll, you know, Kevin is preaching in Lacey. I'll be preaching up here and we'll kind of preach that with this view in the background, understanding that we might be wrong. Um, but a couple of reasons why we tend to lean that way and Revelation, there are certainly um, clues that tell us when a time period is figurative. Uh, so, for instance, when you see something like an hour, um, it's a reference to a short time. Again, a thousand years could be a reference to a long time. But it seems mentioned so frequently uh, in this passage that uh, it, seems, it seems plausible that this is a thousand-year uh, literal uh, time period talking about the prophecies uh, that can be fulfilled, it seems like this millennial period might be um, the only time when some of those prophecies could really be fulfilled. Uh, it, it is, so we understand, one of the earliest views held by the church, although throughout church history, uh, other views have dominated uh, during different periods of history. And then, uh, and then lastly, I kind of feel like it's is the most natural reading of God's word. Again, there's a lot of symbolic language in the book of Revelation, and we need to be uh, careful of that, uh, that we don't take things, uh, dare I say, too literally. Um, Everyone wants to take 
God's word literally. Right? What, was, what is said there is truth. Um, it's just what, what uh, literary techniques are used to convey that truth. Um, so again, all of this with, with great humility and grace, we want to walk through this passage and pull out the truths that we can know and, uh, and maybe identify some of the things we can't also. So let's keep moving on as the vision continues. John says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Speaking of things we don't know, uh, we don't really know who's seated on the thrones. We don't really know how many of them are, uh, how how many of them there are to give us a clue as to who they might be. Uh, We also don't really know uh, who they're judging. So there's, there's a lot that we don't know so far. Hang with me, though. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture, it does say that believers will judge the world and even judge angels in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, this, this judgment may very well be tied to the vindication of those who were martyred uh, during the tribulation period. Um, from this passage, there appear to be a couple of different uh, resurrections at a couple of different times. Uh, some coming to life and reigning with Christ and others being uh, resurrected after the millennium. This second death is a lake of fire that John will explain a few verses later. Uh, a number of times John will do this, he'll, he'll kind of say something and then explain it a little bit later and give more details. Um, there are certainly questions um, about who these martyrs refer to, um, whether they are simply uh, or, or only martyrs who are persecuted during the tribulation period or if they are representative of the whole of believers. Um, for instance, when we, when we see uh, verbiage about being priests and judging and reigning, and having responsibility with Christ, those are all things that actually do apply to all believers in general. Um, so again, there's a, there's a question as to whether these martyrs are just those who have been persecuted um, or whether they refer to us, uh, where all believers would uh, be resurrected and reign with Christ during this millennial period. But at least some of the faithful... Uh, get to rule and reign with Jesus Christ during the millennium. They've come to life. They've been judged, and they've been found worthy. Now, this passage focuses more on the negative judgment, uh, the judgment of the wicked rather than judgment of uh, the righteous. And yet, judgment is a theme found throughout Scripture. And we we don't want to ignore that. Uh, this This judgment uh, that we're talking about here is not the inner out of eternity. 
Um, but it's a time when God wants to richly reward those who have been faithful to him during persecution. And I don't know about you, but sometimes the idea of more responsibility seems not that enticing. <laughs> so this, this idea of like ruling and reigning with Christ, like, oh man, that seems like a lot more work. But think about your boss, right? Jesus Christ. So it seems pretty awesome. Think about a millennial kingdom that, that Christ is reigning over. Right, in a different way than he's reigning right now. Think about that. That would be an incredible, incredible gift and responsibility to be a part of. As we talk about the rest of the dead, um, it seems like that most likely refers to uh, the unsaved, those who refuse to believe in Jesus and reject him. They seem to remain in some sort of place or state um, maybe that's in the abyss. Maybe it's kind of a, a essentially holding place until judgment where the great white throne judgment uh, comes. Again, we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, John explains that, that um, this idea is the first resurrection um, at the beginning of this millennium. And when we were raised with Christ... At a second coming, um, this is that that would be the first step of the eternal state. Uh, I believe that we'll have physical bodies um, again. If we are in this millennial period, I believe we'll have physical bodies. Uh, there will be procreation. Uh, lifetimes will probably be much longer. It will sort of be, you know, almost a return to uh, the Garden of Eden like the way things were supposed to be in the first place. It's God's chance to kind of show what could have been in this millennial kingdom. Um, and again, remembering that Satan is going to be bound during this time uh, so that he can't deceive the nation, so that he can't work um, in the ways that he does. So this time period, this millennial time period, is going to take place uh, on earth um, although the earth may be a little bit different um, after the tribulation. God's, um, if you look at some of the Old Testament passages that seem, again, to refer to this millennial period, Jesus is definitely going to be king. Um, animals will be tame, tamer. And we see lions lying down with lambs and, and so forth. Uh, food will be plentiful. Uh, the climate will maybe be restored, um, not through Amazon, but maybe other means. And this, this blessing that comes from being a part and reigning in this millennium is something that is emphasized, right? The blessed and holy are those who get to participate in that first resurrection. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, this second death has no power. That second death being referred to um, being cast into the lake of fire, which again, John will uh, talk about a little bit later. It's been said that those who are born twice die once, and those who are born once die twice. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Again, those who are born twice, being born out of the womb and being born again through faith in Jesus Christ, only die once. And those who are born only once, who choose to reject Jesus, 
end up dying twice, a physical death and a spiritual eternal death in the lake of fire. As we continue on in this vision, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Very uplifting, right? Um, Gog and Magog seem to be representative of all the nations in rebellion uh, to God. The name uh, Gog in Hebrew means against him. Uh, Gog was actually a grandson of Noah, and these names are found in the book of Ezekiel, which also uh, contains a lot of uh, prophetic images and, and visions. And, uh, and when we, as we read before, this millennial, uh, or at the end of the millennial period, Satan will be released. He'll be released for a time to do what he does best, which is to deceive. And one might wonder, why would this happen? Like, why, why again? Why let Satan out again? Uh, first of all, God doesn't owe us any ex- explanations, but there are a couple of, of reasons why this might be so. Um, one, it would certainly demonstrate Satan's nature. Remember, Satan is bound for a thousand years, and he comes out of that abyss and pit, not repentant, but ready to deceive again and wage one more battle against God. I think it may also demonstrate the nature of people, or rather, more specifically, the sin nature of people. Because here you have this thousand-year period where Christ is reigning and righteous saints are ruling and reigning with him, and still at the end, there's a rebellion So much so that those who rebel are counted like the sand of the sea. So, in a lot of ways, you can't say the devil made me do it. There was already something there that would allow people to rebel when Satan comes out again. So it demonstrates our nature. I think it also may serve to demonstrate the justice of hell. Again, just the, the sheer boldness of coming against God to try and defeat him. Hell is just. It's unfortunate, but it is just. Many assume uh, that the deceived nations are people born during the millennium which again serves to prove the point that everyone still needs to make their own decision about Jesus, even in the millennial age, to accept him or reject him. And so one last time, Satan and mankind rise up against God, and one last time, they'll be utterly crushed in judgment. Verse 10 tells the fate of Satan and all those who follow him instead of God, And it's the lake of fire and sulfur and torment. 
We wrap up this vision with these last few verses. And John says he saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 11 might certainly describe the process or at least the beginnings of renewal and transformation of the earth. I'm not sure exactly what it would look like in the millennial kingdom. Better than after all of the tribulation, I assume, um, as everything is essentially destroyed on the earth. Um, but uh, spoiler alert, there will be a new heavens and new earth uh, eventually, the eternal state. Uh, something, something big is happening in this, right? As the earth and sky uh, flee and that something is judgment this great white throne that presumably God Jesus seated on this throne judging works now as we understand Jesus judges a believer's works prior to the millennium and the dead um, we think this is referred uh, here to the wicked those who have rebelled against uh, God throughout their lives after the millennium. And here we get to this book part. It says, books were opened before the great white throne. It's certainly likely that one of the books is scripture. Right? This is a book that we certainly know about. It is the standard for us. It's how God has revealed himself, his character, his plan of salvation, the problem that we have, and the solution. Right? Nobody will have an excuse if the Bible is one of these books when that's opened. Because God has revealed himself throughout all of creation and also through his word. We encounter another book here, uh, the book of life. This is the only named book uh, that's opened. Um, but this book is referred to in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a book in which God writes the names of those who trust in Christ. And it's used in judgment here in a negative fashion. Those that trust Christ have confirmed that their own works should result in their death. But that Christ's work would give them life. That's what enables you to be written in the book of life. One needs to accept the free gift of salvation by asking God to make that exchange. That God would see Christ's work and his righteousness in exchange for my sin. And through believing in Christ's death and resurrection, we can have that and be written in the book of life. 
Now, it seems like there is at least a third book or maybe volume of books, the sort of book that records our works and deeds. The book of works, at least in this passage, shows that every unbeliever falls short of God's perfection and standard. Can you imagine, can you imagine a book of all of the things that you've done, all of the things that you didn't do, but should have, all of the things you thought, all of the things you didn't think, it would be an impressive volume, I would think, or depressive volume, more likely. But rejecting Christ, rejecting Christ means that we get judged by that. And there's no one who will stand based on their own works. Again, don't get me wrong. Everyone is judged on their works. Christians are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but we're still judged by our works and rewarded accordingly. One way to think of it is that believers are not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. As this judgment continues, it's not just people who are judged. It's not just people who are thrown in the lake of fire. We see death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Hades was the Greek god of the underworld. Uh, In the Bible, it seems to refer to uh, a place, kind of a personification of death, so to speak, in this passage. What I see in this passage is that death dies. Death dies. Death is thrown into the lake of fire. So when we say that trusting in Christ saves us from Satan, sin, and death. We really mean it. There will be no more death for believers. And again, the way I understand scripture, death was never really supposed to be a part of this world. It was inevitable. It wasn't a surprise to God. But it's not what we were created for. We were created for life. And all of the sin and pain and death that we experience would have been foreign. There's a lot we don't know. A lot we don't know as we look at the millennial kingdom. But here are some things that I can preach with full confidence. Several principles and applications that we can find in this passage, which are totally unaffected by which view of the millennium people hold. One, Satan can do nothing that he is not allowed. Now, on the face of it, that may not seem all that encouraging because he still seems to do a lot. We might want to ask, well, why would God allow Satan to do anything at all? Again, God doesn't owe us an explanation for anything. 
if we could understand it all, (laughs) um, I'm not sure that God would have have much of an edge on us. Point being, God is the power. God is sovereign. And there's nothing that happens that is outside his purview, outside what he allows. And we should be able to take some comfort in that. Number two, everyone is judged. Even though this passage in Revelation uh, mostly focuses on the judgment of the wicked, the negative judgment, uh, we will all be judged. Christians, non-Christians, everyone. And we'll all be judged according to a standard. That standard is found in his word, in, his, in God's character. He's given us enough. He's given us enough to figure out enough of his nature, to figure out enough of his standard, to live lives of obedience through his power. Three, the consequences of this life are eternal, one way or the other, good and bad. We have one shot at this life. Hell is eternal. I would love to believe that people who reject Jesus just kind of Avengers Endgame disappear. I'd love to believe that. I don't see that in Scripture. Not with descriptions of being tormented day and night forever. Sure, there's symbolic language. But we're talking about being apart from God forever. I don't want that for anyone. So we need to understand that the consequences of this life are eternal. On a more positive note, believers will be with Christ when they die. The logistics, the timeline, the form, there's a lot of questions there. But I know for sure that believers will be with Christ when we die. One of the questions I think we need to ask and need to answer before we're forced to is, am I willing to die for my belief in Christ? That's what's at stake here. And people are being forced to answer this question even today in other parts of the world. Jesus is very clear that to follow him is to die. To follow him is to die to one's self, to die to sin. But in a very real sense, some of us will be faced with a choice. Denounce your faith or die. Reject Christ or die. For me, I don't know about you, for me, that question doesn't seem all that hard. Right? Reject Christ or be with him. Seems like a no-brainer. And yet, and yet, what about to denounce my faith or experience unimaginable pain? To denounce my faith or watch people I love suffer? How about this one? To denounce my faith or be uncomfortable? Lose popularity, have less money, 
Who knows, some of those things I've already demonstrated that I'm not willing to do. And so I get a little bit discouraged at my own lack of faith. When I choose not to obey Jesus and do something that I want to do, sin to avoid being uncomfortable. But I think this is one of the purposes of the book of Revelation, to encourage us, to give us courage, to prepare us for those questions to a point where we can truly say and believe that there's nothing worth denying Jesus for. It is worth everything to live by the book and to invite others to do the same.